0: man and woman in love, celebrating married love, celebrating the goodness of durable, committed, and yes, at times, sizzling, hot, married love. So today we're looking at this section, which we've already read in previous weeks, but it's chapter 4, verse 10 through chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to focus on the theme of the garden today, so let's read this together. This is the word of the Lord, in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 10 and following. This is from the husband who's telling his new bride, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How beautiful, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon, the cedar trees of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Literally, he's saying, your thighs are an orchard of pomegranates. Henna with nard, fragrant perfumes, nard and saffron, exotic spices, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, fragrant lotions, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, the woman sings. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then the man says again, I came to my garden, my sister my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then their friends sing about their love during this wedding feast. Eat, drink, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. amen. You may be seated. Wow. Now, once again, I'm going to keep this PG 13 for the older kids that are still in here. But today we're going to have just a focus, a very focused attention on this idea that the man and woman are celebrating their love in the metaphor of a garden. We're learning about gardening today and what it has to do with marriage. This man calls his bride, right here in chapter 4, verse 12, a garden, locked up. And he says later in verse 15, a garden fountain. He calls her a well of life, living waters, a spring, enclosed, protected, and safe and pure. So he calls her my garden. He says, you, baby, are my garden. Okay, like, we're married now? You're my garden. Then he says, well, then she says, yes, come to my garden. Using the first person, possessive, my garden, yes. And then, he says at the end, I came to the garden and I browsed and I ate and I drank and I'm just drunk with love now. So what's interesting here right off the bat is that we see that there's a focus on this mutual possession of love, that they own each other in love. They're mutually delighting but also possessing each other. And most time when I used to think about sexual love in issues like purity when I was growing up and I think about what does God want for my life? He wants me to be pure in my body, and my mind, you know, sexually and romantically with women. And I would often just think about myself, my body, my mind, my heart, my relationship with God. What this does though, it really changes the way that we must think about our own, our own purity and to include the other person, the other people in our lives. Who are we seeking, who are we dating, who are we interested in, who are we married to? It's important not just to say, hey, this is my garden, my body, my soul that I need to keep holy before the Lord, but your body is your garden. It's not my garden until we marry. Then I can only say, then and only then, my garden. You are my garden. My garden is yours. We belong to each other. Very important. That's really the the lens we're going to look through today is that there's an importance to protecting and preserving your own garden, But it's equally important to think about the ones around you. Think about your brothers and sisters. Think about your friends and your neighbors, your classmates. Think about the people that you are attracted to, the people that you simply have friendships with. Think about those who you might one day marry or the one that you are married to. This is about protecting all of our hearts and minds. It's about gardening. What do you think of when you think of a garden? Maybe you think of life. Maybe you think of care and nurture. You think of hard work, thorns sometimes, you know, dirty hands, but there's a reward. The time that you put in, the energy you spend planting, watering, watching God do his work with the sun and the rain and all the other things you don't have any control over, and then life begins to bloom and you begin to enjoy a harvest, the fruit of your labor, your responsibility, your patience, the cycles, the seasons. This is what love is... All about. This is what marriage is all about. Everything a garden is, you you can find a parallel in life and in relationships. The garden metaphor is not just about protecting your own heart, your own body, this very body that's mine, but it's about being a steward in the garden of society, being a steward or a manager, taking good care and responsible care of other people and their lives, their hearts, their bodies as well. The first thing I want to show you from the text is that This is a model between a man and woman's love to put a perimeter of protection around your life, around your own body, your own heart and mind, your own sexuality, you could say. To place a perimeter of protection around your own self. Think about the words he's using about his lover, his wife. You are a garden locked. Click, clunk, chunk, you know, the bolts are turning, he's putting bars over there. You, You were locked. You were protected. You were saving yourself. You were a fountain sealed. You know, someone put a big seal, like a big stone, over the fountain, over the well, and you couldn't just, you know, drop trash in there. You know, if there were animals walking by, they couldn't just go in there and drink out of it. This was a safe, pure, protected spring of water for people to drink, and only certain people. And you are a spring locked, a fountain sealed. You see, the language he's using is like very protective. Very secure it's it 's very pure it 's keeping out the predators, keeping them out of the garden, keeping out the pollutants. you know we all are about keeping the earth green, right? You know we want to save the environment, we want to do what 's right, we want to pollute less and steward more and that 's what he 's saying is we want to use our bodies like that, we want to protect ourselves like that. Why would we pollute ourselves or let predators come into? our own lives when we wouldn't let that happen just even in our gardens or our empty lots in the city of Chicago or the sidewalks out front, you know? I'm so glad there's a trash can. Just came out front this week, right at the bus stop. I just thought on Monday at a community meeting I was a part of and I said some my, my fellow residents, like, we just need a trash can in every block in this neighborhood because then maybe, I know people wouldn't always use it, but maybe we should at least like pressure them and be like, hey, there's a trash can. Cool, I like trash cans. How about you? Watch this, you know? And so there it is. I love it. I, I love the fact that we care about our environment. We should care about our bodies and each other's bodies the same way. What is this garden? It's a place where. There's protection, there's safety, there's beautiful and delicious things growing for the relationship between the man and the woman, but there's also the opportunity for something else to grow there. Weeds, of course, you know? Thorns and thistles, the things that the curse when sin entered the world said there would be in this world. Thorns and thistles. And so we have to protect ourselves because not all the seeds that come into the garden, not all the, the um, pollen that lands on these soils of our lives are healthy and good for us. We have to be aware And beware. We have to realize that what goes into the garden will eventually come out of the garden. I have a garden on my rooftop. You know, third story building, rooftop garden. It's one of the joys of my life to be able to go up there before anybody in my house wakes up and just have some early morning you know, walks around, pulling some weeds, watering things, picking some of the vegetables there. But the weeds, I don't know how they get there. I mean, every year I pull them and they're always back again the next year. And often I can't tell the difference between the weeds and the plants early on because they're just too small. So I let everything grow to a certain point, then I finally begin to notice and I can pull them. I don't have to work for the weeds to grow. I have to work extra hard for the plants that I want to grow. The fact is, if you're not protecting yourself against the weeds, they are going to grow. The temptation, the compromise, the excuses... It's going to happen naturally. The fact is you have to protect yourself. Put a perimeter around your life and your heart. In my house on my rooftop garden, I have several predators that like to go up there and compete with me for my food supply. One of those would be the raccoons. We have raccoons here in the city. And there is one that I've met personally a couple times. Late at night, I put my headlamp on, 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night when all my family's sleeping and I hear noise up on the roof. I get my BB gun. I sneak up there, and I hunt for raccoons. Now, I will say, I've shot the raccoon a few times with my BB gun. It doesn't really phase him. He just like keeps walking around like nothing happened. So, either way, that predator, I don't know what I don't know what I'm gonna do with the raccoons. The squirrels, though, on the other hand. Um, I've done several things to prevent them from getting in my roof. I've tried to prevent them even from accessing it. For one thing, I, I had some chicken wire, you know, like really thin gauge wire, and I thought I'm going to put some chicken wire over the plants. They somehow seem to get in, and I don't have enough of it to cover all my plants because the garden's growing. What I thought is I'll electrify the chicken wire, <laughs> and I'll wrap my roof all around the perimeter with chicken wire electrified. So. I took off my back uh, floodlight off my porch, and I had an open, exposed outlet box. And I ran a copper wire to my chicken wire, and I flipped the switch, and boom! The whole thing just exploded. And they were just like, there was there was no wire anywhere. Like the whole chicken wire just disappeared, and there was like black lines what? on my wooden porch. Like it just incinerated it. I was like, well, that probably wasn't a safe idea. Um, <laughs> So then I, I built some little deflectors, maybe if you've seen my porch recently, I did this a couple months ago, I've got like little metal deflectors up on the post so when the squirrels try to crawl up the post they hit these deflectors and they can't get over them. I see squirrel hair stuck inside so I know they're trying but it's at least slowing them down. They can still get up there but I'm trying so hard to prevent the predators and the weeds but I have to work extra hard because they're going to find a way. The point is we have to put, put a perimeter around our lives If we want any chance to have healthy relationships with each other, secure the perimeter. Give your body to no one else physically before marriage and protect them. Say, you know what, there's boundaries, there's lines I'm going to not cross. Imagine if Ben and Allie saw that home in Woodlawn and they said, we want to move into that home. We like that home. It looks good to us. So many good things about it and then they just decided to move in before they actually bought it or had keys to it. How would that have gone over? Now they'd be in jail right now. They'd be locked up. This is not how you move into a home. First you purchase it, you sign a contract, then you get the key, and then you go in. Having sexual relationships with someone that you're not married to is like moving into a home that you don't own. Just go in, whatever, whatever looks good, that's the home I want. That's the body I like. That's the person I want to be with. Have you signed a contract? Have you put a promise down? Have you made a down payment of vows and given exchange for those vows, tokens of rings or something else in our, symbol that might, in our society that might symbolize, I'm with you forever. I'm not just moving in or moving out. I'm not just spending the night. I'm not just shacking up. I am with you. And I won't move into this relationship in that way until... We own each other. We belong to each other. We possess each other. Someone who says, I like that girl or I like that guy, I think I'll try them out, they have no claim over each other to do that. They have no right to do that. They have no right to possess that person if they haven't made covenant claims over them and received covenant responses in return. Just a few weeks ago, the Harvard men's soccer team was called out, and actually their season was canceled, for ranking the women's soccer team at Harvard by their appearance, the appearance of the women's players, and also by other things that I won't mention they were ranking them by. And the women's soccer team responded beautifully and strongly and said, in part, to the men of Harvard soccer and any future men who may lay claim to our bodies and choose to objectify us as sexual objects. In the words of one of our players, we say together... I can offer you my forgiveness, which is and forever will be the only part of me that you can ever claim is yours. I will offer you my forgiveness, but that's the only part of me that you can ever claim is yours. So strong, so powerful, and that is exactly right. We don't have claim over each other's bodies. We should forgive one another. We should Help one another, we should love one another, but until those vows are made, the garden is no one's but yours and God's. The soccer team of Harvard, the men's soccer team, could not say to these women, You're my beloved and I am yours, like the woman in the Song of Solomon says, and her husband, I am my beloved and he's mine. You can't say that. You can't say you're mine and I'm yours unless you're married. And it doesn't apply to men who act like little boys and still say, oh, I'm going to make her mine. You can't make her yours. You're not really acting like a man until you say, I'm going to pay the price, make a promise, and commit myself to this one and only one person for the rest of my life. But once they make that commitment, once they have said the perimeter was set, we were protected in our hearts and our bodies, and now we are ready to enter that covenant of marriage, now listen to what happens. The call that the woman made to her friend throughout the the voice um, of singing in love in this, in this Song of Solomon, she earlier said things like, do not awaken or arouse love until it's time. Do not, she calls on nature itself. Hey, animals, and you know trees, don't awaken love. Wind, don't blow and stir things up until the time is right, until we're married. And now she's saying, right here at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, awake, O north wind, Come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Come and blow and flow. Now love will flow freely. Now our love will be enjoyed deeply. She's saying, there's nothing holding us back now. The gate is open. We've made a way to enjoy each other's love. She's saying, young men and women, unmarried people, even though it's painful, I know the loneliness and the temptations are great. That She's saying, don't try to awaken or arouse love before it's time. It's like taking a rose in the garden and saying, this rose is just beginning to grow, but I can't wait for it to bloom. I want to enjoy its petals and its fragrance. And I know it's going to take a few more weeks, but I can't wait So you begin, what, like peeling the petals back and forcing it open? No, of course you don't do that because that just destroys it. You don't say, well, I'm just going to flood it with water because I know water helps, so I'm just going to water it. 50 times a day and I'm going to you know let it sit out in the direct sunlight in the middle of July all day long with no shade. You don't do that. You can't force love to bloom. You have to wait. You have to wait on God's work and His timing. And so, the second thing I want to show you from the text is that beyond just putting this protection around us so that we won't destroy ourselves and our relationships is that we should put a premium or that means think very highly of and, and choose often just love. Put a premium on just love. Now I'm not saying only love. I'm saying a love that is just. A love that's joined to justice. And What I want to say about this is that there's a contrast you can see in our own hearts and our own desires and our own um, theories about who we are that really stands in contrast to how we act most of the time. We might think of ourselves in our culture as a pretty good candidate for instance for dating or marriage. You might think of yourself maybe as a pretty good catch. You might say, you know what, I want to find someone who's kind of equivalent to me. They're compatible with me, maybe intellectually, maybe socially, or they have some money, maybe of course hopefully you'd say spiritually in their relationship with the Lord. So you you look for that person, when you find them you think, you know what, I'm a pretty good catch, they're a pretty good catch, let's get together and we'll become a thing and the mindset is often, what can you do for me? And I've already kind of done what I need to to make myself a, you know, a good candidate for you, so don't try to change me, because I'm already, I'm already feeling that I'm pretty good. Like, I could change a little bit, like maybe I'll take my socks off the ground or you know, learn to uh, you know, eat leftovers or something, but don't try to change like, who I am. That's pretty much off limits in our culture. Don't try to change me. Okay. And so both people are thinking the same thing. I'm bringing a pretty good person into this relationship. Even if I know that I've got faults and mistakes, I still want to get my way, so don't try to roll over my agenda, trample my rights, or change me in any significant way. That's pretty much a, a, no, um, a no-brainer for most people today. They just, that's how they think. I say no-brainer because they're not thinking about reality when they do that. They're just assuming that this is how relationships work. And so as soon as the first problems begin to surface and someone says, you need to make a change, oh, don't touch that. You, you can't tell me what to do. And they begin distancing themselves and eventually things like divorce happen for no reason. If they would simply think about what reality is, that if we really think about um, <clears throat> what our priorities are in other areas of life, let's just take social justice, for instance. Social justice means doing good to people in need, helping those who are hurting, things like this. We often think of ourselves, once again, as pretty good people. I'm kind of the complete package. I'm, you know, smart. I've got some, um, you know, decent looks, and I like to help people that are hurting. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I have a little bit of money. I'm not super rich, but what I do have, I give here and there. You know, I put a little money in the church offering plate. When someone asks me for some spare change on the street, I might give them a quarter or a dollar. And so I do pretty good things out there in the world. And you think. You know, if if there's an immigration issue and Donald Trump has something to say, I'm going to stand on this side and I'm going to say, hey, I care about immigrants. And if someone else says, hey, look, the poor are poor because, you know, I say I can do something about that. I care about that. I care about this policy and I'm going to vote for that candidate. We care about things like this. We think and tell ourselves, theoretically at least, that we're doing a lot to help the social needs in our society. No, I would just challenge right off the bat that some of us are probably living in more theory than reality. You should probably be doing a lot more to help the poor and to care about immigrants and things like this, but at least theoretically you think that's a good idea. All I'm asking you to do now is to take your theoretical social justice impulses and apply them to relationships, dating relationships and marriage. Take the, uh, the impulse that I need to do something to serve someone else. I've been given some privilege, I can help someone else. I'm not in this for what I can get and what I can take, I'm in it for what I can give and how I can serve. Apply that to your relationships is all I'm asking you to do. Think about someone else, their body, their mind, and their soul, and don't go to them and say, what can I get from you? What can I squeeze and extract out of this person? But how can I love them justly? How can I share with what I have with them, humble myself and serve them? How can I serve you rather than what can I get out of you? And beyond that, not just what can I get or you get, but now we have to ask the question in this just type of love. What are we going to do as a couple, as a dating couple or a married couple? How can we make a difference? One of the most obvious ways to me that is often overlooked in our society is that gardening produces fruit. So if you think about relationships like gardening, when you garden with someone, when you have a relationship of love, fruit will generally be produced. Human offspring, to be precise, babies. You know? When you love someone to the end and you love them, fully and you consummate that love in marriage, babies are often born. Not always, you know, some people have infertility and whatnot, some people choose not to, but that's what naturally happens, of course. And so what I'm saying is you have to think it's not just about me, it's not just about you, it's about us, and it's also not just about you and me baby, it's about you, me, and the baby that's going to be born, or the babies that will come. Any person with whom you're willing to make a baby must be willing to raise that baby with you. I mean, that's the way God said it, right? If you're saying, I want to share my love and do some gardening with someone and enjoy some love and do all that, the natural result of that is that you need to be willing to commit yourself to that person and to the little family that you're going to create and not just to be another statistic of another dad who's you know, in the court systems, a woman chasing after him saying, I need child support and you're not giving it, When are men going to be men and say the babies I make are the babies that I'm going to raise with the mom who will be my wife if she's not now. Making those decisions to say this is what justice looks like. We can say black lives matter and immigration matters and the life of the unborn children in the womb matter. Yes, we should say all those things but will we say that love matters when it comes to issues of justice? How I treat you it's going to be a just type of love. A real, committed, fair, just love. Anything else than what I've just described, this whole baby creating thing, if there's not like a wedding ring thing happening with it, it's not real love. It's selfish, unwise, and immature. So we need to place a, pl- a premium on just love in our relationships. And then, thirdly, this kind of leads into the next point, which is, there's this joint ownership in the garden. There's this sense of we're all in this together in our social experiment of love, our just love. We're in this together in the sense that your garden is your body, my garden is my body. Now we're sharing the gardens with each other. There's mutual ownership, co-op gardening is what we could call it, right? You know, co-op gardens are like when people from the neighborhood all get together and they work the same land and they. Share the the field just like we started the garden down the street with a couple of other organizations a few years ago. We all kind of work it together. This is how marriage works. It's a co-op. It's cooperative. It's a partnership. It's joint ownership. We basically own each other's bodies. It doesn't mean I can abuse you or trample over you. It means I willingly share myself with you and you do the same for me. The love in the Song of Solomon is not manipulative. You don't see anybody saying, I'm going to take advantage of this woman, or this man. It's not masochistic, meaning it's not abusive. People getting off on hurting each other. It doesn't lie, it doesn't cheat, it doesn't twist the truth, it doesn't steal. It simply continues to lovingly, trustingly serve and enjoy what God has given them. I'm yours in your mind, and I'm fully yours, and I'll protect you to the end, and I trust that you'll protect me. First Corinthians chapter seven verse three says, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to the husband as well. Now women might think, whoa, this is dangerous. Dangerous truth. This is a power play. You know? What are we talking about? The woman's body belongs to the husband. Is that chauvinism, Paul, who wrote that? No. Listen to the next phrase. But in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. There you go, women. See? You get your chance too. Mutual. Cooperative possession, belonging, ownership, and love. Do not deprive each other, Paul says, except by mutual consent. He says if you're feeling uh, like you want to snuggle with your spouse or you know spend some time with them, don't deprive them of that. Don't say, oh, you know, I'm not in the mood or I, I have other things to do. Spend time with each other. Make sacrifices for each other. Be patient with each other. Love each other. Paul says, don't deprive each other of this physical love except for a time so that you might devote yourself to prayer. Okay, so time out from all the love. Okay, stop kissing. Take some time to pray. Okay, Husbands and wives should do that too. But get right back to loving each other, being sweet, sensitive, caring with each other. Proverbs okay. chapter 5, verses 15 through 20 says it like this. Drink water from... Now listen to the pronouns. What's the pronoun? English majors, what's a pronoun? It replaces a noun... And what's the possessive pronoun? Shows ownership, like me, my, and mine. You and yours. Theirs and theirs, right? So listen to the pronouns here. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern. You know, cistern's like a well, like a storage tank for water. Now, it's not saying drink from your own body. It's saying drink from your own cistern, meaning your spouse. Go to that other person who is yours and Delight in them. Be satisfied in them. Listen to the next phrase. Flowing water from your own well. You're drinking flowing, delicious, living water from your own well. This is deep satisfaction. This isn't shallow waters like described in the next phrase. The question is this now, Proverbs 5. Should your springs, now that's talking about your own body, your own body, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's almost seamlessly going back and forth and saying, your body and your streams and that person and their body and their flowing waters are commingling. It's hard to determine exactly who's being talked about in any given phrase because they own each other. They belong to each other. They possess each other. And they're not going anywhere else. They're not saying, well, you're mine, but I also like her, and I'm going to make her mine on the side. Like a little, a, little, a little water fountain on the side. Like, you'll be my, my well, baby. You know, like all that fresh, cleansing water. I, thank you so much for... But I'm just going to have a little sip of something on the side. Mm-mm. Nope. Saying, this is yours and this alone. She's yours alone, but she alone is yours. No one else. If you start scattering your waters in the street, they just get shallow and dirty. If you go deep in the well and protect it and put the seal over it, Beautiful, Satisfying. That's what was meant to be from the beginning. The next thing we see is that there is in the scriptures from the beginning a sense in which the Garden of Eden, which God created in the Genesis chapter 1 story, is is being revisited here in the Song of Solomon. You've got all this garden imagery, like in chapter 1, verse 16, and throughout the book, even where we're reading today. But listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse uh, 16. Behold, you are beautiful, The woman says, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. That means we're out in the grass. The beams of our house are cedar. That means the trees are our rooftop canopy. Our rafters are pines. We're out in nature enjoying, exploring on our honeymoon the beauty of each other and the beauty of God's creation. And it blends seamlessly with what God intended for us in the beginning. He created the Garden of Eden. A beautiful, lush place with trees and fruit and rivers and gold. All the things are being described in the Song of Solomon. It's very creation Edenic, you could say. It's like the Garden of Eden all over again. And in Genesis 2 and 3, we have this woman and man who are perfectly in love with each other. Their bodies, you know, the woman made from the man. They're one flesh. They're enjoying and singing about love, just like in the Song of Songs. The first uh, human words in the Bible is a song from the man. Whoa! What have you given me here, God? This woman. Wow! Amazing. He sings a song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Thank you. He just burst out into a song because of the woman. But very soon, of course, the serpent comes in and they are tempted and the woman takes the fruit and shares it with the man and they both eat in disobedience of God and they try to become like God. They try to take over God's role as the only ruler and judge and they say, we'll tell you, God, what is right and wrong. We'll make our own decisions. We'll make our own laws. And then, of course, the struggle begins. The thorns and thistles begin growing in the garden. The dirt becomes hard. Serpents now begin to bite. Now the curse is, the woman shall desire the man, but he will rule over her. This word desire happens to appear three times in the Old Testament. Right here in the curse in Genesis 3, the woman will desire the man, but he will rule over her, and she will be bearing children, and it will be painful, and she will also raise children, and it will be a painful experience to raise children. Sinful children in a sinful world. That's why a lot of people say, I don't want to raise kids in this world. That's not the answer. But that's part of the curse. I desire to have a place in our home. I desire to have a voice. I desire to be loved. And it's going to continually be met with a husband who abuses his privileges, abuses his rights. Takes advantage, manipulates. Doesn't provide the protection she desires. And so then the second time the word appears is just a chapter later in Genesis 4. Genesis 4. When Cain and Abel, the two first brothers, you know, the first siblings, you remember that story right, where Cain kills his brother Abel before he murders his own brother? That word is used. The desire for Cain is to destroy his brother. Anger is waiting, crouching at the door. It wants to overcome you. It's desire, Cain, is for you. It's a very evil use of the word desire because sin is now all over it. Women desiring their husbands to treat them a certain way, to have a certain role in the family. It's going to be frustrated. Now even siblings in in that very same family are frustrated with desires that lead to death. The third time the the word appears, though, desire, in the Old Testament, the third and only other time, is right here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. The woman is singing. I am my beloved's, and his desires for me. It's like that whole word and that whole experience has been redeemed in this redemptive grace of Christ that a man and woman in marriage can actually have true love, unselfish love. They can actually enjoy each other's company. They can actually trust each other and commit to one another exclusively. Rather than a woman's desire being frustrated, she is now appreciated. You could say the curse has been reversed. In this marriage, paradise has been regained. The garden, once again, is growing and beautiful, not just full of thorns and thistles. Once again, the man and woman, like in the beginning, are naked and unashamed. A beautiful picture. He says, back in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 11, he says something really interesting. Chapter 4, verse 11, Your lips drip nectar, my bride, He's not saying, baby, you're drooling all over me. No, he's saying, you have some juicy kisses. Honey and milk are under your tongue. He says, I found paradise in this passionate Hebrew kissing. Not French kissing, Hebrew kissing. (laughs) Honey and milk, milk and honey, that's the language of the promised land. isn't it?" He says, the promise has been restored. Paradise, restored to me in your embrace, in your arms. No more hiding behind the trees in the Garden of Eden, ashamed of our sin. Now we're openly embracing one another before the Lord, honest, real, forgiving, loving, no more curse, no more pain. This is what it will be like in the new heavens and new earth. Will it not? When you fast forward to the end of the Bible, the whole earth will be transformed into a garden with flowing waters and fruit trees and open, sinless, holy love. Just love. True love. So in closing, I just want to say to you You know, I know that many of us, myself included, most of us, I'm sure, except for maybe the youngest of us, have made mistakes, things we're ashamed of sexually. You know, we haven't locked the door. We haven't sealed the fountain. We've made compromises. We've hurt other people. We haven't protected ourselves or them. We've just abused and used and taken and rarely thought, what can I do to serve you? And how can I serve my king by waiting for that exclusive man or woman that's meant for me? And we've done things that certainly reflect our selfishness and our foolishness. And, and so I'm asking, what do we do with the past? What do we do with the mistakes? When we think, I want to have this type of love, but I've already done these things. Well, let me just give you some advice. What do you do when you've taken a watermelon and you've scooped out all the, the red flesh? And then there's the seeds and all the green hard rind. What do you do with that other stuff that you don't eat? What do you do? throw it away, shame on you. You should compost it. You know, (laughs) Compost it. That's what I would do if I were you. I have a compost pile right up on my rooftop, right there next to the garden with all the plants, a big bin, and all the scraps that I can possibly collect. We actually have a compost bucket in the kitchen here at the church. It's an old coffee can that says compost. Put your coffee grounds in there, your eggshells, whatever you want that's organic material that's not like meat or cheese. Put it in there and it will be composted, recycled, reused. It will be reduced down to decaying material that's just useless to you, you'd think. You should just throw it away, right? Who wants to eat that? That's just trash. That's just junk. We just want to throw it away and forget about it. But what I'm asking you to do is to compost that junk. I'm asking you to put it back in the soil of God's grace and say, God, I know I've made some mistakes. It's just a bunch of junk that I've done. It was foolish. I can't do anything with that. But say, I know you can, God. You can take that stuff. You can stir it into my life. You can let it sit there, you can turn it over a little bit more, you can do your work, the sun and the rain falling apart. I can't do these things, God. I can't make dirt beautiful. But God can. I've got some beautiful dirt in my house. I love to just like run my hands through that dirt and feel it. Because I made kind of the dirt. But it was really God who made it. Because I just dumped all that junk in this big box and next year I open it and there's this rich black soil that's full of nutrients and full of life. And when I put a seed in that ground, guess what? That seed dies too. You might think, oh well, there goes the seed. It's dead. No, no. It's going to sprout. It's going to bear fruit one day. So all these things that are, you think, useless—just they're dead, they're dying, they're decaying, God can do something with that. What I'm asking you to do, brothers and sisters, is compost your junk in relationships. Compost it. Don't waste it. Don't say, it's it's a part of my past. I just have to grieve and shame on me and I'm a loser and I can't ever have something good and precious and healthy again. No, no. Let God do His work. Let Him stir the soil of your life. Let Him shine on you with His grace. Let Him come in with with His truth and His Spirit, which is like water, and create something beautiful out of that dirt. You know what I'm saying? In the Garden of Eden, there were rivers and fruit and flowers. The same thing's happening in the Song of Solomon. And in the heavenly Jerusalem, one day we'll be in paradise again. We'll be walking among the garden with each other, unashamed, the sun shining on us, God himself. We'll have no more sin, no more junk to deal with. There'll be no more curse, no more crying or pain. It'll all be beautifully transformed, composted into something living, fruitful and true. One day all of us, whether we're married or single, whether we're divorced or painfully in a relationship right now, whether we're having a good time in a relationship, we will all be mended and healed, our broken bodies, our broken minds, our our broken past, and we will fully enjoy the garden of God's love forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for even the things that are broken and dirty in our lives, which you can stir up and transform and recreate something good out of. Thank you for the pattern of Beautiful married love that we have in the Song of Solomon. I know that it's an ideal love. I know that there's also pain in real life, and this song deals with that as well. But we we don't want to be naive and think that we can simply float along in life and everything will work out. We have to protect ourselves, protect us from the weeds and the predators, the pollutants, and help us to look at our neighbor, our sisters and brothers, and love them well and love them justly. Help us to be able to give and not just take, Help us to find someone that we can truly possess and say, you are mine and I am yours. And through it all, Jesus Christ, help us never to think that a human, a man or a woman, can provide the satisfaction and the salvation that only you can give us. So we we turn to you once again. We trust in you. We want to lift our voices and sing to you because you're good, you're gracious, and your love is true. and will never fail us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.